0: Please be. Uh, st- please remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Hebrews. This is the very end of uh, the letter, chapter 13. You know, it's kind of odd to go towards the end of a letter, not having preached from chapter 1, but that's okay. A couple of our covenant groups have gone through this as a study, and our retired chaplain uh, Ken Godwin has preached a couple sermons, and we'll be doing more in this text as well, but it's... Pretty simple here, Hebrews 13,18 and 19. And before we hear God's word read, let us go to Him again asking for His help. Our wonderful God, help us to see the urgency, the necessity, the goodness of prayer as a means of grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Hebrews 13, verses 18 and 19. Hear now the word of God. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. No fancy-schmancy introduction here. The topic of these verses is prayer. And it is quite appropriate for such a time as this because every day it's appropriate to pray. It's appropriate also because prayer is a means of grace. It is a way that God gives us grace, that God gives us himself, that God the Father gives us his Son, that God the Father, God the Son give us God the Spirit. Prayer is It's appropriate. It it precedes, and it follows the sound preaching of the Word of God, the exhorting of the Word of God. This letter is called a brief word of exhortation, which is just uh, the author's way of saying it's a a sermon. Prayer is the, the warp and woof of the Christian life. I think it was Kevin DeYoung who said that, A prayerless Christian is an oxymoron. It's a a contradiction to be a Christian and not to be one who prays. So nothing new is going to hit your ears this morning, but prayer is a means of grace, as one Puritan has put it. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, ministers, sinners, the church, thy kingdom to come with greatest freedom, ardent hopes. As a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. And throughout this letter, all 13 chapters, we are taught beautiful teachings of the Son of God, about his superiority, of how he is the best. He is better than Moses, he's better than the angels, he's better than his priesthood, is better than the Aaronic priesthood. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats, he is supreme. We are at the same time urged throughout this letter to hold fast our confession and to consider Christ as we run the race, and we do so with faith in Christ. And at the same time, we are warned rather heavily, especially in two chapters, six and and nine. We're warned heavily by the example of that faithless wilderness generation. There is much for us to consider in the light of this brief exhortation, as the author calls it. And we would be wise to be, quote, all prayer and never to cease praying, as that same Puritan has put it. If ever our church needed this means of grace, it is now. God's people pray. That's the point. It is that simple. God's people pray. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And so we are told to pray. Oh, maybe the skeptic could ask, well, are there any good reasons to pray? Oh, let us count the ways, and I will help you count them. The author gives us two reasons in these two verses, though those are not the only reasons I will give you. He says first that we have a clear conscience and we desire to act honorably. That's the first reason we would pray, because there's a clear conscience with a desire to act honorably. The author of the Hebrews confidently asked them to pray for him and his co-laborers, his co-leaders, because he had a clear conscience that they were following the will of God. They had a good conscience, they were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. He knew it. Everyone else knew it. But they have been submitting to the will of God. They have been conducting themselves well in all things, or at least they've been desiring to conduct themselves well in all things. Like the pastor to the Hebrews, the officers of Cross Creek, and all the members here of this church have had their consciences cleansed by the righteous blood of the Lamb of God. If you are in Christ, If you are saved, if you are justified, if you have been adopted, if you have been sanctified and are being sanctified, then that is only because of the purity of the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Your conscience has been cleansed. The stain of sin has been cleansed. And so now we can walk on holy ground as we come into the throne room of God. And it is by this cleansed conscience that we are enabled, because of the Spirit's work in us, to live well in the sight of God. Again, we are not perfect leaders. We're not perfect church members. I'm no perfect pastor. We all know this. There's not a perfect elder, there's not a perfect deacon, not a perfect member here or in any church. The Lord knows this. You know this. You know that we don't always lead perfectly, we don't always lead well, and we know that we don't always serve well, we don't always serve perfectly. At the same time, we love the Lord. At the same time, he has given us hearts to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And so we can say, with the author here, let's just call him Paul, we can say, with Paul, that we truly desire to act honorably. We share the same core commitments. We all care about the spiritual health of Christ's church, generally, yes. Specifically, right here, Cross Creek Presbyterian Church. We're all committed to Christ's glory and Cross Creek's good. We love Jesus and we desire to be more like Christ and we long for the same for everyone here. And of course, we long for the same for everyone outside of here because we all want people to know Christ as he truly is. It is our heart's desire. And so because of this clear conscience, because of this desire to act honorably, we're told that we can, you can, confidently pray. The second reason that he gives us is that prayer facilitates the fulfillment of our requests that have been made with faith. Prayer facilitates, or we can even say hastens, the fulfillment of our requests that have been made in faith. Look at verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The author is urging the Hebrews to be in fervent prayer for him and for his leaders. He cannot impress upon them enough the urgency and the importance of their much-needed prayers. He urges them because he knows that the prayers are of the righteous are effective as James says that they avail much the prayers of the righteous your prayers beloved avail not a little but much not ineffective but effective does that not warm your heart that God will use your weak prayers to uh, to make effect that he would even call your prayers righteous prayers? How could that be? Not because I am righteous in myself for my own own works, of course not, but because of what Christ has done, and because who my mediator is, because of Christ. And so in this light, when he says that I may be restored to you the sooner, what's fascinating here is that he knows that by their prayers... He will be restored to them sooner rather than later. He knows that through their prayers, something as mundane as physically meeting up again, that's what he's asking about. Pray that I would be with you face to face, that we would have that embodied gathering together again. I long to see you again. Pray that I would be restored to you sooner. And so he knows that something so mundane as meeting together is under the affectionate care of God, their Father. That God even cares about this man and this group coming together again to fellowship with one another, to hear the word, to pray with each other and for each other. In other words, if they do not pray for him, To be restored to them, the author thinks, knows that it will take longer for him to arrive than if they had just prayed. So his arrival time is dependent on their prayers. You see that? But that sounds pretty mysterious. How does that work out? I don't know. I just professed that it does. God works it out in such a way that when we ask in prayer by faith for what is in accordance with His will, then He is pleased to grant our request, and He will do so all the more quickly, humanly speaking, of course, if, if we ask than if we didn't ask. Now, you've heard this saying, well, it never hurts to ask. And we don't take... Um, I don't take all of Dave Ramsey's um, wisdom to heart. Some of you are familiar with his course, Financial Peace University, and his series on how to manage your money. And uh, Elizabeth and I, years ago, wanted to have a better handle on that. And so we went through this course, and one of the things that he said that stuck with us was, hey, it never hurts to ask. If you go try to get an appliance, it never hurts to ask if you can get it for less money than they have it for And that's just one operating principle that my wife has really taken to heart, and we've been well-benefited from that principle. Never hurts to ask. Got a lot of good deals. And if that's true on an earthly level, certainly it's much more true on the heavenly level. It never hurts to ask God for His will. In fact, it's always a good thing to ask God for His will. And notice that it's asking God for His will, asking Christ for His will. We submit our wills to the divine will, at least we ought to. However fervently we we want something, however urgently we are asking, it's always with. But your will be done, O oh God. Because we don't have the full picture. Because we're not all, all known. We're not all wise. We're not all good. We're not all powerful. And so our knowledge is limited. Our wisdom is limited. We don't have an eternal decree. We're not working out all things together according to the counsel of our will for the good of all. For the glory of God, usually it's for our own glory so what we're doing here is we are praying for Christ's will to be done. Not Michael's will. Not the will of any other elder. Not the will of any other deacon. Not the will of any church member. but The will of God. And the thing is, God wants us to ask him. He wants us to come boldly to the throne of grace. And when we do, we're told from these verses that he responds all the sooner. Again, how does that work out? It is a mystery. Because our prayers do not change the immutable, unchangeable decree of God, which he has made from before all eternity. In eternity past, he has issued a decree, a single decree. And that will come to fruition It will be fulfilled at every point, in every single detail. And that is a comfort. That our actions never, at at any point, threaten the will of God. We take comfort in that, don't we? That our sin... It does not threaten God's eternal decree to pour grace upon grace into our hearts, to convert our hearts, and to make us alive in Christ. We are not that powerful. Our will is not that strong. At the same time, we're told to pray. And we're told that prayer is meaningful. We are commanded over and over again in Scripture to pray. This is just one example. But think also of Christ's words in Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, seek, knock. Three ways to express coming to the throne of grace. And it would be better translated, keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Don't think that once is enough. Get back on your knees. Get after it again. Day after day. And the Lord, in His sovereign decree, is working out in real history the fulfillment of His decree and is using your and my prayers to do that. Humanly speaking, even faster, even sooner than if we had said, you know what, we're not going to pray at all. Those are two reasons that we're given to pray. We have a clean conscience and we desire to act honorably. And prayer facilitates or hastens the fulfillment of requests made in faith. But those certainly are not the only two reasons. There are 48 other reasons in the book of Hebrews alone that I was able to draw out. I won't read you all forty-eight. But, you know, I imagine there are actually more than 48, plus the two, more than 50 reasons to pray from Hebrews alone. But here, have some. In chapter 1, verse 13, Christ's enemies are a footstool at his feet. What does that mean? It means that nothing then stands in our way to him. Your own sin, the world, the devil, is subjected to the victory of Christ. It does not threaten your or my entrance to the throne room of grace. Chapter 2, verse 11, we are called Jesus' brothers. And a, a real brother cares for his siblings. And a real brother communicates with his siblings. And if he is the greatest brother of all brothers... Certainly, he communicates to us through his word, and we can communicate to him through prayer. He cares for us. He wants to hear our cries. He wants to hear our acknowledgement of weakness. He wants to hear our supplications. He wants to hear our worship. And so we come in prayer to him. Chapter 3, verse 6, Christ has been faithful over the house of God of which we are a part. This is the house of God. You are the house of God. You are indwelt corporately as the house of God. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit indwells us that our hearts might ascend heavenward and pray to our Father in heaven. In chapter 4, verse 16, we are urged and invited to draw near to the throne of grace boldly. How about that for a reason? We are urged by God to come. We are exhorted, we are encouraged, and we are invited to draw near to the throne of grace and to do so boldly, with confidence. Jesus says, Come, pray to me, pray to my Father, pray in the power of the Spirit. What kind of people want we to what kind of people are we to say? No thanks, Jesus. I don't want to talk with you. No, we've been invited. Come and pray. What a delight. What a reason to come. Chapter 5, verse 5 Christ was appointed by the Father to be high priest for us, to deal gently with us in our weaknesses. Our Father knew that the people he created in his image were sinners. And even when they were made saints, would be weak, would need to be dealt with gently. And so he has appointed just the man, just the God-man for the job, Jesus Christ. And so we come with all of our weaknesses, with all of our imperfections, and we say, deal with me gently, God. And he does so. He does so because he didn't deal gently with the Son on the cross. All the harshness of the wrath of the Father was spent on the Son that we might then be dealt with gently in that throne room of grace. In chapter 7, verse 25, it says that Christ lives to make intercession for us. You could ask yourself, why, why do I live? Well, of course we know the shorter catechism answer, I live to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But why does Jesus live? There are many answers to that question, but one of them in this, in chapter 7, verse 25, is that he lives to intercede for you and me. One of his functions as mediator, no longer as humiliated, but as exalted mediator, the risen Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father, One reason for him being there is to intercede for you to the Father, is to bring your requests to his and our Father. And do you think the Father listens to the Son? The Son, who throughout the Gospel of John says over and over again, I have come to do the will of my Father. At the end of which... He says, I have glorified your name, glorify it again. It is glorified. The Father always listens to the Son. There's never any reason in the Son, from the Son, where the Father would say, no, I don't need to listen to you. He is the perfect, only begotten Son of God. And so when the Son intercedes, the Father hears. Chapter 8, verse 2, Christ is our minister in the true tent. This preaching act, this is done by one who is a weak minister, who wonders week after week with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? But one of the reasons we wear the black Geneva gown is that it's not about the one up here. It's not about me. It's not about Ben, when he preaches, not about Ken when he preaches, not about any other who would provide pulpit supply. It's not about them. They are lowercase m ministers. There is the true eternal minister who is giving his word and sacraments, and that is Jesus Christ. And so we commune with him by prayer. Chapter 9 verse 14, Christ purifies our consciences so that we might serve God. One way we would serve God is through prayer. As we already saw, our consciences have been cleansed. Christ purifies us that we might pray for His kingdom, that we might pray for one another, that we might serve God through prayer. If prayer really is a way that God brings out the fulfillment of His eternal decree, then we serve God by praying. In chapter 10, verse 25, we are exhorted to encourage one another to love and good works. And prayer is certainly a good work to do. It is fundamentally a means of grace, but it is also a spiritual duty. And not just a duty in itself, but it is a delight. It is a joy that we have communion with God. Hopefully no husband or wife says, well, I have to talk to my spouse today. You do have to talk with your spouse today because you're married. She is yours and you are, you are his. You should. You don't, shouldn't struggle. Oh, I don't, I don't want to talk. You get to talk. It's the same thing here. You have been made children of God. You have been invited and urged to come to the throne room of grace. Yes. You have been commanded to to pray. It's more than that. It's, I get to pray to my Father in heaven. I get to pray to my Savior. I get to pray to the Spirit who indwells me. I get to pray to the triune God. What grace is that? It makes the heart marvel. It ought to. In chapter 11, all the faithful have shown us that faith in God is not worthless. It is essential. And when we pray, we stand by faith on the promises of God to preserve his faithful ones, to bless his faithful ones. These men and women of Hebrews 11 were men and women of prayer. You know that because they had faith. If there is no faith in the Lord, there's no prayer to the Lord, no real prayer. And so if there is genuine prayer to God, that is an expression of genuine faith in God. Trust in Christ, of dependence on the Holy Spirit. So there are many examples right there in chapter 11 of men and women who, by faith, prayed to their God. In chapter 12, verses 18-29, through we are part of the unshakable kingdom of God. Which kingdom, by the way, we are told in Jesus' prayer, Lord's prayer, to pray for it to come. We are told to pray for the kingdom to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are exhorted to pray for that unshakable kingdom to come in its fullness. Chapter 13, verses 7 and 17, we are told to remember our leaders who watch over our souls. And we can do this as we pray for them. Surely, dear ones, we have every reason to be fervent in prayer. But for whom do we pray? And what do we pray for? Well, verse 19, we see the answer there, as as it would be locally applied, the author of the Hebrews and his co-labors to be restored to the Hebrews. That's the prayer request. But we don't need to pray for those leaders. The author has already been restored to these brothers and sisters, hasn't he? If he wasn't restored to them face to face on earth, certainly he's restored to them in heaven as they are together worshiping God in perfect harmony. But as long as they were on the earth, they needed prayer. Now they are in heaven, prayer is unnecessary for them. They have been fully sanctified. But our situation is different, isn't it? We're not part of the church triumphant yet. We are part of the church militant. That is to say, we are part of the church that is waging war, that is in the fight against the threefold enemy, the sin, the world, and the devil. The apostle Paul needed the prayers of his people. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.11, you also must help us by prayer. So, if the Apostle Paul needed prayer, certainly we need prayer. Certainly, we, your leaders, need prayer. We know this. You know this. And so, pray. And here I have in mind, in particular, pray for your elders, pray for the session. Pray for us that we would minister to our families, that we would not neglect them, that we would raise up our our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that those of us who have wives would minister to our wives, washing them with the word, as Paul tells us to do, that we would nourish them and cherish them, we would love them as Christ loved the church. Pray that we would do that for our families. Pray that we would take seriously the fact that we are watching over your souls. That we will have to give an account for how we have shepherded you. That's a weighty responsibility. I feel the burden every day. Pray, then, that we would humbly submit to the shepherding committee to help us watch over your souls wisely. Pray that we would not give in to any temptations of sin, thereby being bad examples to the flock, thereby shaming the pure name of Christ. We don't want to provoke you to sin. We don't want to scandalize you as, as we're told not to do. Pray that we would lead well by joining our hearts with the heart of God, making much of Christ, exalting His name, proclaiming His grace, Commending his lordship. That we would seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, that we would not seek the kingdom of the elders. That we would not seek the kingdom of Michael Mock, of Harry Emerides, of Connor Aubrey, of Steve Bennett, of John Blake, of Rick Hartney, of Walter Parrish, of Johnny Searles, or of Ron Vogus, that we would not seek. The kingdom of any one of us or any group of us, but that we would seek the kingdom of Christ and His will for us as individuals, for us as a session, for you as the church. Pray for us, pray that we would not misuse our God given authority, that we would not be domineering or lording it over you, that we would shepherd as Christ, the good shepherd, has modeled for us pray that we would not give in to the fear of man, but that we would be bold enough to address hard issues. Hard issues, too. To speak the truth, but to do so with love. Love for one another, love for Christ, love for this church. pray that we would do all of this with great joy and not groaning, knowing that the joy of the Lord is truly our strength, As we go about the business of the church, Christ's church, pray that we would be humble, that we would be wise, self-controlled, joyful, patient, kind, loving, faithful. Pray that we would be men full of the Spirit. So we've been told why to pray. We've been told who to pray for, what to pray for. Then what? Then pray. Again, I told you the message was simple. Pray. And do so passionately, do so fervently, do so unceasingly. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, Cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. They are as arrows without heads, as swords without edges, as birds without wings. Sometimes we do pray cold prayers, don't we? Sometimes we we pray with unfeeling. We don't really desire it. We're just doing it because of a duty. We're not into it. But one remedy to cold prayers is to reflect on the warm heart of Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for you. Praise be to Jesus that his prayers are never cold to the Father. And that he is eternally affectionate to you. His compassion extends to you. His mercy extends. His wisdom extends. He says, you want joy? You got it. You need more joy? Here you go. I have an eternal supply of it. You need patience? I know you do. I'll give it to you. Ask for it. You need to be self-controlled? Well, I can give that to you as well. That you might be controlled and compelled by the love of Christ. We just pray. Just ask. We reflect on who He is, on what He has done, what He is doing. Certainly, if our Lord and Savior can pray for us, we can pray for one another. We can pray to our God. And so come, come to the throne of Christ, throne of God, and bring us with you. Bring us with you to our high priest, our intercessor. Carry us along in your hearts. Carry us along with your words. One way that you can help to remember you can carry us along is to ask us, how can I pray for you? That's a pretty simple question, isn't it? Have a face-to-face, text, email, call? Quick question, how can I pray for you? I'm sure we all have something that you can pray for us. There are many elders and deacons here, praise be to God. They're all listed on the back of this order of worship, this bulletin here. Write down those names. Cut that little section out. It's okay, it's not the Bible. Go online, look at our faces, copy, you know, copy and paste, print those faces out, put them on the fridge, put them in a place where you frequent as you walk into that room, you see those not-so-handsome faces, and you can take them to the beautiful face of Christ in prayer. Remember us in prayer. If you did that every single day, if you took one elder and one deacon every single day, you'd be done in a couple weeks. And then you get to do it again. Because two weeks later, we need your prayers then, too. And, and know, dear ones, that we also are praying for you. We have our own shepherding lists, and we are praying for you. And we are praying for others who are off of the list as well. We're praying for you. Pray also for us. Another practical way you can pray is by attending our pre-service prayer gathering, which is open to everyone. Worship begins at 1045, of course, but our church ministries actually begin at 9 from 9 to 9.15, in the church library, you can pray. In fact, if more people did that, it would not be in the library. Give the others a, a conundrum. Where are we going to put all these people? Maybe we'll put them in the sanctuary. Maybe we'll have to go outside in the grass and pray. A lot more room because a lot more prayers It's not a guilt trip. Some of us can't make it. I can't always make it. I know that. And just because you don't attend that prayer gathering doesn't mean that you're not praying. We know this. And certainly we don't want to guilt trip you into praying, which avails nothing. Being led by guilt doesn't do anything. But being led by gratitude, the grace of God, certainly avails much. You know, we in the Reformed community believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. There really is no hope without it. There's a reason we are part of the unshakable kingdom. It's because of the unshakably sovereign God that is king. But at times we misunderstand God's sovereignty by thinking that our prayers do not matter. Well, if it's been predestined, why pray at all? God will do it anyways, right? That's certainly not what God has called us to do. This attitude misses the biblical picture that God works through our prayers to carry out his good and perfect will. If we don't ask, we don't receive. And so ask and seek and knock. And pray, remembering what the author says, that your prayers on our behalf might hasten the fulfillment of our requests and our needs. Now, Monday morning, I was typing away, and I thought that I had seen the silhouette of a man in the sanctuary, and it was a dark room. I thought I saw the man postured properly in prayer to God. And I wondered, what might he be praying? I wonder if he is praying for the elders. I wonder if he's praying for the deacons. I wonder if he's praying for his brothers and sisters. Surely he's bringing his pleas to Christ, his intercessor. And then I was mistaken. There was no one in the sanctuary. After doing some research, no one was there. It was, I guess, just my spiritual speculation, if you will. I I thought I had seen someone in prayer. And for a moment, just a moment, I was discouraged. Oh, it would have been nice if that person had really been there praying all these things. But my discouragement quickly was done away with because that doesn't mean that no one one was praying. Certainly others are praying. But my encouragement isn't based on whether any individual is praying or not, but on our high priest. And I recall a hymn we sang last week, 305, Arise, my soul, arise. And line three, If I could modify Wesley's line just a tad to make it particularly applicable for us. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive. Nor let that ransomed Cross Creek die. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your ministry to us. We thank you, O Son of God, our intercessor, our mediator, the only redeemer of God's elect. We thank you that you have given us this means of grace, that we might avail ourselves of it every single day, that we would unceasingly pray for your glory for the good of your church, for the edification of our brothers and sisters, for the purity of your name, for a witness to the world. We thank you that you have given us this means. And we thank you, most importantly, that we have Christ. He is enough. His prayers, as righteous prayers, avail much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.